The very first Christian book I read was by an author named Howard Hendricks. The name of the book was Say It With Love, and I got it because I responded to a telephone ministry, the Billy Graham ministry, after receiving Christ way back in 19... And um, I read this book, and it was very impacting on my life. And uh, Howard Hendricks wrote a little article in Leadership Magazine, and here's a portion of it. He said, from research and personal experience, I've come to the conclusion that in every church, 16% of the members will never change. The tragedy is I see young pastors every day leaving the ministry because of that 16%. It's as if they're butting their heads against a brick wall. What they should be doing is concentrating on the 84% who are ripe for change. That's where the real ministry of the local church takes place. I have discovered that change is hard for some people, seemingly impossible for others, but necessary for you and I to thrive. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that was the problem that Paul was up against. He was in a predicament because the gospel was a renegade message to Jewish ears. It was new, it was different, revolutionary, and threatening to some. So Paul had to fight the old system, the old way of doing things. See, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people relied upon the law, the law of Moses. They said it was God's final message to mankind. Nothing would ever be added to the law, the Torah. Paul preached the gospel. To them it was new. The scribes and the Pharisees fought against that because to them, to change any of the Old Testament in their mind, it was an idea of changing or accepting something new, was considered sinful. Now here was the problem further. When God gave the law, by the way, the law was never really kept. Oh, it's one thing to boast and say, we need to keep God's law. Okay, let me look at your life and see how well you do. That was the issue. The Jews lived in perpetual generational denial. They broke the law time and time and time again until they were taken into captivity because they never kept it. Well, when God gave the law in Deuteronomy, the people say to Moses, Moses, we're not going to go up to Mount Sinai because we don't want to die. You go up, find out everything God wants to tell us. You tell us, we'll listen, and we'll do everything God said. God replied to that by saying, The people have spoken well, but oh, that they had a heart within them to keep all of these commandments. God knew that they may have good intentions, but they didn't have the ability to keep the law. And so Jesus said of the religious leaders, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And then to the people, he said of them, For they bind heavy burdens too heavy for you to bear. And even Peter, he would have to agree and say, 
to the council in Acts chapter 15 there at Jerusalem. He said, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, Paul, you remember, spent a number of years in the wilderness by himself combing through the Old Testament scriptures, the Bible he was familiar with, going through those familiar prophecies, looking at what the Bible had to say, and he emerged from the desert with a new message. But it really wasn't a new message. You see, it had been predicted by the prophets, by Moses, through Abraham, all the way through the Old Testament. And here was the message. God's love and salvation was not just for a chosen few, but was available to the whole world. Everyone, anyone could come. Anyone, everyone could be saved if they wanted. So what did Paul do? Well, he would go into the synagogue. That was his first stop, right? Every time he went into town, he would always go into the synagogue first. Usually the last place in the town he visited was the jail. Synagogue to jail. He went into the synagogue, preached the gospel to the Jews. If they kicked him out, he shared it with the Gentiles. When the city got stirred up, he went to jail. I've often wondered if Paul, when he got into town, didn't just find out where the jail was so he'd know where he'd be spending the night. But Paul knew that this message was revolutionary. Revolutionary. And it was the fulfillment of all the Jews ever said they wanted, all that the prophets ever predicted would come. Paul's major stop, in fact, the whole first part of Galatians is centered around this time in his life when he went up to Antioch. And he went into the synagogue. And he preached to the Jewish people. And I'm not going to read it all, but in Acts chapter 13, and just listen to the words, because by the time you turn to it, I'll probably be finished with it. He says to them, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Tonight we want to look at Galatians chapter 3. And look at nine verses where he continues his argument for what we just read. We are saved by faith, an act of God's grace, not by works. Do you remember the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So? Of course you know it. Everybody knows it. You've heard it a lot. If I were to write a song using that song, summing up this chapter, I would write these words, Salvation is by faith we know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a message you need to walk away with tonight. Salvation is by faith. We know that because the Bible says that. Now listen, 
It's always, always, always important to be able to point to the Bible for any practice you do. Why do you do that? Well, we've always done it that way. Not a good answer. Not a good reason. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people at Pentecost, and those in Jerusalem said, You guys are drunk, full of new wine. What is this you are doing? Remember, Peter said, This is that which was spoken of by the prophets, who said, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And so he pointed to the scriptures to validate this experience. That's what Paul does here in Galatians 3. We've already covered verses 1 through 5, where he makes the argument from personal grounds. He says, you remember, when I came to you, I portrayed Christ as crucified. Now he argues from scriptural grounds. We're saved by faith because the Bible says so. And tonight, in our little study of these verses, six times, Paul quotes from the Old Testament law, sections of the Bible that the Pharisees, scribes, Jews called the law, God's holy word, the book. Because, you see, Paul was accused by the legalists, by the 16%, of being too free of this new message not being validated by the old book, the Old Testament. So what does he do? Very cleverly, six times, he shows how that salvation for the entire world, by faith, was predicted in the Old Testament. We mentioned last week that there's only two religions in the world. Not eight, not 28, not 463, two basic religions. First is the religion of human achievement. I get saved by something I do. I'm right with God because of something I perform. And the other religion, or the other approach to God, is that of divine accomplishment. It's not our work. It's his work. It's not something we earn. It's something we receive as a free gift. I would venture to say, as I did last week, that most of the people you know who say they are religious people, spiritual people, are banking on the first approach, the religion of human achievement. Look what I've done. I belong to the church. I do good things. I deserve heaven. They're risking their entire eternity on that. Paul knew that. Paul was aware that that's human nature. And he knew that in his own religion, Maybe you can relate tonight. Even right now, you can think of the religion you grew up with. Like Paul did the religion he grew up with. In Romans 10, he spoke about the Jews. And he said, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now let's quickly move into verse 6 tonight. And let me just tell you where he's going with this. He's going to say three things, and you're going to see it. Number one, Abraham was saved by faith. I'll tell you why that's important. Abraham was saved by faith. Number two, anyone can be saved by faith. 
if Abraham was saved by faith. And number three, always was faith the condition for salvation. That never changed. Abraham can be saved by, was saved by faith. Anyone can be. And always faith was the condition. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the first quote in the Old Testament. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now you know, the Jews were proud of their relationship to grandpa. That's what they called Abraham. Our father Abraham, or as my tour guide likes to call him, grandpa. They loved Abraham. He's our father. He started the Jewish nation. And they look back as the hero of all. Remember when Jesus was having a conversation with the Jewish leaders? And they said basically, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham? And remember Jesus said, well, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to kill him. And here was the problem. The Jews believed that physical descent from Abraham equaled spiritual life. You say, I can't believe they thought that. Just because they were genetically Jewish, they were saved? Right. Just like some of you grew up thinking, well, I was born into my father and mother's faith, so I've got to be saved. Right? You remember the time when John the Baptist, ooh, I love this guy, was baptizing by the Jordan River? And they talked about their heritage with Abraham. And John the Baptist basically said to them, Don't think in your mind we have father or we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up out of these stones sons to Abraham. Now, he's quoting in verse 6. Notice, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is one of the most important texts in the Bible. It's so important to Paul that he pulls it out here, he pulls it out twice in Romans. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Let me tell you the story. It's in Genesis 15. Abraham has just finished a battle with several kings and he's wondering if he's going to make it back home alive. God assures them that he will. God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am your shield. And I am your exceedingly great reward. Now listen to this great man of faith. He says, what are you going to give me? Now listen, God says, I am your reward. What are you going to give me? Seeing that I am childless. I don't have a child. Show me that you're my reward. Give me some. Give me, give me, give me. All I have is this guy named Eleazar. He's the only heir, and he's not even a part of my family. He's from Damascus. God says, Abraham, go outside. Come on, man, let's take a walk. Look up. What do you see? Stars. How many? I don't know. I can't count them. God says, you see those stars that you can't count? They're innumerable. So shall your offspring be. So many people are going to come out of your loins. You're going to father an entire nation. And it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's a pivotal text. What does that mean? The word accounted is an accounting term. 
It means to put something to one's account, to put something to the positive side of the ledger. You see, when a person works at a job, he earns money, he gets a paycheck, they put a number to his account so that after two weeks or a week, depending on when your pay period is, they write you the amount of money that is credited to your account because you deserve it, you've earned it. What Paul's point is, what God's point is through the scripture is that when you trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus earns salvation for you and God puts righteousness to your account. He writes that right there as if you deserve it, but you don't. Jesus earned it for you. How does God do that? By something we call substitution. Substitution and, I hate to use these words, but I'll explain, imputation. Imputation and substitution. Substitution, Jesus died in your place. Imputation, God gives you on your account something you didn't earn or deserve. I'll sum it up in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's verse 21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. This is what that means. It means that God treated Jesus Christ like we deserve to be treated so that God could treat us like Jesus Christ deserves to be treated. Jesus took all of our pain, all of our sins, so that we could bear all of his righteousness. That's substitution. He died in your place. That's imputation. He wrote righteousness to your account. I was reading this morning Isaiah 53, not because it was communion tonight, but I just happened to fall right into it as I'm reading through it in the mornings. And I read that text. We all know and love Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for Skip's transgression, our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. So that's what Paul says. Look at Abraham. In verse 7, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Question. How was Abraham saved? By circumcision? Did God account righteousness to Abraham? Did God impute a right standing to Abraham because Abraham went and got circumcised and kept the law of Moses? Moses wasn't even born. When Abraham believed God, listen carefully, he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He came from a pagan country, Ur of the Chaldees, and migrated. And he looked up and he believed God. And God said, you're righteous because you trust me, you believe me. It wasn't 14, it would be 14 years later that a covenant of circumcision would be given to Abraham. So if God accounted him righteousness when he believed 14 years before circumcision, you can't say, well, it's because Moses kept the law of circumcision and he did this ritual that he was saved. Oh, no. He was a Gentile and he believed God and he was saved. So that's a pivotal text. Now, what the Judaizers were doing to Paul 
some people do to us, it's still done. Well, you have to baptize every baby born into this world or they're going to go to limbo. So there's a rush to the waters of baptism because you're saved by the baptism. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Christ, the Anglican Church, all write into their script, their necessity for salvation, baptism. You need to be baptized to be saved. Even though Abraham was saved before circumcision or baptism or anything, he believed God. Charles Spurgeon's most famous sermon of his whole life, it's regarded at least, was one on infant baptism, strangely enough. Listen to what he said. I am amazed that an unconscious babe should be made the partaker of an ordinance which, according to the plain teaching of the scriptures, requires the conscious and complete heart trust of the recipient. Very few, if any, would argue infants ought to receive the Lord's Supper. There is no more scriptural warrant for bringing them to one ordinance than there is for bringing them to another. I was baptized as a baby. I got to tell you, honestly, I don't remember it. <laughs> I don't remember acknowledging that I was a sinner in need of a savior before that event. I don't ever remember calling out on the Lord's name and asking him to save me. No, I did that when I was 18. And I got baptized after that event in a swimming pool my friend's swimming pool. Chuck Smith's brother, Paul Smith, took me to a swimming pool, baptized me. I remember that. But it was a few months after I prayed to receive Christ. I was saved the minute I trusted Christ, not the minute I went under the water. Because some would say, swimming pool, that didn't even count. <laughs> Verse 8, he continues. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That's his second quote, quoting Genesis 12. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Here's the second point in this section. Abraham was saved by faith. Point number two, anyone can be saved by faith. For he says, in you all the nations shall be blessed. You see, from the very beginning, when God started dealing with Abraham, God had the world in mind, not just one nation, one race, one chosen people called the Jews. He had the whole world in view. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, Here's the problem. In Galatia, these Jewish legalists, these Judaizers, these people who said we're Christians, but we are telling you, you have to be a Jew, be circumcised, and keep the law of Moses before you can be saved. Paul was saying, no, you don't. Because Abraham was saved by faith. If you want to be like Abraham and enjoy the covenant blessings, you have to come the way of Abraham, which is the way of faith. And he says, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Have you ever heard this? Well, Christianity is a Western religion. 
You have no right to go overseas and preach to people in Africa or the Middle East or Muslims and tell them about your Jesus. That's a Western religion. Theirs is an Eastern religion. You have no right to impose your values. Ever heard that? Well, God begs to differ with you. He says it's for the whole world. In fact, if I remember correctly, didn't Christianity start in the Middle East? In fact, technically, on the West Bank. It started in the West Bank and spread. And Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations. I know what's going on in Iraq, as do you. The United Nations Council, the movement of our country, the inspectors going in in the next few days. And we're all a little bit nervous. And I don't know what's going to happen, and I do support my country. And I believe that God is still on the throne. I've got to believe that. God hasn't vacated the throne. God isn't saying, what am I going to do now? <laughs> God somewhere, somehow has a plan. And I'll also tell you, God loves Iraq. God loves Saddam Hussein, and he'd love to save every one of them. And a few years ago, when we went to Baghdad, and I spoke with three members of Saddam Hussein's cabinet, and then I spoke in a local Christian church, and I gave an invitation, I asked people to stand to receive Christ, 20% of the entire congregation gave their lives to Christ that night. So the gospel isn't just for America, the Southwest, the West, it's for the world. And God had that in mind way back in Abraham's time. So Abraham was saved by faith. Anyone can be saved by faith. And finally, we close with this. Always, Old and New Testament, faith was the condition. Verse 10. For as many of us as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's the third quote from the Old Testament. And here's the fourth quote. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for, here it is, the just shall live by faith. Two Old Testament scriptures in those verses. First is Deuteronomy 27. Now what's Paul's point? This. The law doesn't bring a blessing. It brings a curse. Unless you're perfect. Now I just am curious. Would anybody dare to say tonight, they are a perfect individual in all that they do in and of themselves. Anybody perfect here? Never broken the law of God ever. No one. Okay, that's why the law is a curse. Unless you're perfect, the law is a curse. Because the law makes these demands. You must keep all of the law or you are a transgressor. You can't keep it one day, one month, one year. It's a rigid, strict, complete compliance. And I've heard people say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, even if you did, and you just broke one, thou shalt not lie. <laughs> You've borne false witness. But even if you did, there's more than Ten Commandments. That's just the Decalogue. There's 600 and some commandments. You keep those? See, it's funny. People say, you ought to keep the Sabbath law. I keep the Sabbath. I worship on the Sabbath. And you evangelicals don't keep the Sabbath. And I tell them, you don't either. Oh, yes, I do. 
Oh, no, you don't. They said, what do you mean? I said, do you know the Sabbath law? It's not relegated to one day. You have to keep a Sabbath year. Do you do that? Do you stop after seven years and let the ground lay fallow all of your work? You do absolutely nothing and you just take in whatever you stored up. Do you do that? And I shared the entire Sabbath law. Well, we don't do that because we're in the New Testament. Then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. The just shall live by faith. So there you are, all the way through the Old Testament. He's showing you that God always justified men and women through faith. The just shall live by faith. Verse 12, he continues the argument. Yet the law is not of faith. But, here's the fifth quote, the man who does them shall live by them. Quoting Leviticus 18. His point is this, the law doesn't ask people to believe. The law doesn't ask people to try really, really hard and keep the commandments. The law demands perfection, strict adherence, perfect obedience. The law says, do this and live. Jesus says, believe in me and live. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly, then gives me wings. Jesus says, believe in me, I am the only one that could ever live the perfect life you could never live, and I died in your place, and by substitution and imputation, I make you righteous by faith in God's sight. That's Paul's argument here. The just shall live by faith. If you're under the law, you don't live by faith, so you're not justified. So if tonight you're saying, I'm justified because I do this and I do that, in God's eyes, you are not justified at all. You know why? Because Isaiah records that God sees all of our righteousness and calls them, remember? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. All that you could ever try to do to attain God's love or right standing isn't enough. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus did what the law, what you, what I could never do. So verse 13 and 14, and we'll close it up and have the Lord's Supper. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, substitution. For it is written, here's the sixth quote, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What was the penalty for breaking the commandments? Death for breaking some of the commandments. In some areas, you could be taken out and stoned for capital crimes. When Jesus died, he wasn't stoned. The Jews would have loved to have done it, but the Romans had the right of capital punishment. If the Jews had their way, they would have taken him out and stoned him, but they couldn't. And Paul's making a point. Jesus died on a tree, and in the Old Testament, to be hung on a tree is the ultimate form of humiliation. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And Paul says, look, that's where Jesus died, on a tree. Jews didn't stone him. 
The Romans put him on a tree. The ultimate sign of humiliation. His point? Jesus suffered the ultimate humiliation. He took the curse upon himself. Why? He says to redeem us from the curse of the law. You know what redeem means? It means to buy a slave to release him. So what Paul is saying is you Galatians are listening to legalistic teachers who are trying to put you into bondage when Jesus took the bondage, the curse, to emancipate you, to set you free. Now in closing tonight, before we pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper, I want this to sink in because imagine, imagine just for a second, if the way it worked is that you did get to heaven by keeping the law, by going to church, by doing good deeds, by meritorious acts, let's say you did. Can you imagine how boring heaven would be? Think about it. You'd have to listen to a bragamony every five minutes. Let me tell you what I did. Oh, I can top that. I did more than you did. Oh, please. It'd be one story trying to be topped after another. Remember the time when, and I've had people come up to me and say, Skip, you don't know what I've given up to follow Christ. <laughs> Whatever. Peter tried to pull that one. Lord, we've left all and followed you. <laughs> Jesus said, oh, you've given up lands and homes, etc. It will be given back to you a hundredfold. Let's just say you came into a great inheritance. One you didn't know about. You had some relative that bequeathed everything. Multi-million dollar bank account, an estate, Mercedes, boat. And so you go up to your friends and you say, well, I've inherited millions of dollars in this estate in Mercedes, but I had to give up my broken up Chevy <laughs> and my beat up apartment. Oh, poor you. You've given up so much to gain so much. You haven't given up anything. Jesus paid it all. You and I deserve hell. You and I deserve death. Jesus took it all so that God the Father could treat you and I like his own son. We can never say, God, I've given up so much. No, Jesus can say, I've given up so much for you that you might be mine. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We rewrite the song. Salvation is by faith, we know, for the Bible tells me so. Jew and Gentile can be saved. We are free who once were slaves. Now, I'm sure it will never take. I'm sure that song will never be rewritten with those words. But that's the emphasis of Paul here. Anyone can come by believing. Oh, oh, I know what some of you are thinking. Skip, that's a dangerous message to preach. Just salvation by faith alone in Christ. Why, it could lend to all sorts of license. People could say, I'll do anything I want to do because I'm saved by faith. Well, if you're truly saved by faith, you'll produce works. You're not saved by works, but if you're truly saved by faith, if it's authentic, your life will bear fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit.
That's why if somebody claims to be a Christian and says, I know the gospel, I believe in Christ, but there's no change at all in their lives, and they're living a continual life of sin, you can say, I don't think you're saved. Now that person will say, you're judging me. No, I'm a fruit inspector. <laughs> and ain't no fruit on that tree. That's why Jesus said, judge you a righteous judgment. You can only do that by examining the fruit. Oh yes, God knows the heart. I don't know the heart. All I can see is fruit. Is it in your life? If it's in your life, you've been saved by faith alone, in grace alone, through Christ alone.